Deuteronomy chapter 14. If you're joining us for the first time, we are going through the book of Deuteronomy. It's an Old Testament book, and we really have dedicated our Friday nights to go through the Old Testament because, unfortunately, for many, it's a neglected part of the Bible. But for many who don't understand, that is two-thirds of the Bible. And if God really wanted to give us a book with his revelation and truth, um, apart from the Old Testament, he would have done so, but he gave us the Old Testament for a reason. And that's what we're discovering week after week. And so we're in the book of Deuteronomy, and up to this point, we're understanding that Moses, who is God's spokesman, is giving instructions to the chosen people of God at one point, the nation of Israel, and how they should relate to God, and how they should relate to man as God's chosen people. And last week, we discussed about the things in our lives that will potentially drift us away from a pure heart of worship. Two weeks ago, we talked about worship. What is worship? What does it really mean when I say, I worship God? Last week, we talked about, though we can attain a heart of worship, and we can sustain that heart of worship, it will not go unchallenged on a daily basis. And we talked about the threats to our worship. And now we are coming to Deuteronomy 14, where Moses is going to get very specific on certain behaviors that can uh, be adopted by the people of God. So it's not full out turning against God and saying, I'm going to now worship this idol full-fledged. No. He's talking about certain patterns or habits that we can pick up that are not according to God's will and that could affect our testimony and ultimately affect the way we walk with God. So he gets really practical here. It gets really detailed. And if you've read this chapter, you've probably thought to yourself, like what many people think, how does this have to relate to me? What does the dietary law have to do with me? I'm in the new covenant. I'm a Christian. How does the old covenant relate to me? How does me mourning somebody's death in a specific way have to do with my daily life? How does me in relation to my money and how the Old Testament talked about money compares to how the New Testament talks about money. So that's what we're going to discuss. But I love how Moses starts it, and I think it's appropriate in us understanding how we adopt these principles. Look at verse 1 of chapter 14. You are the sons of the Lord your God. Full stop. You are the sons of the Lord your God. The way Moses is about to teach this section of practical, righteous living is by first mentioning their position. See, it's a very dangerous place to be when you and I come to a Bible study like this or we view our relationship with God by understanding practice before position. By understanding my behavior before I understand my identity. That's not the order. The order is I need to know my identity first to motivate me to live in a certain way. I need to know my position in Christ first before I understand any type of practice. Because if we put the practice before the position, we're going to get exhausted real quick. We're going to lose motivation real fast. We're going to want to press the eject button very soon if we first don't understand who I am before what I'm supposed to do. And Moses has already done this so many times before. How many times have we read before a set of commands Moses telling them, the God who delivered you from Egypt, the God who pulled you out of slavery, the God who rescued you from the slavish dictatorship of Pharaoh. And then he gives the commands. Because he wants us to first understand 
Oh yeah, God saved me and God delivered me and God rescued me. Therefore, I give my heart as a response. So he says in the beginning, you are the sons of the Lord your God. Which tells me something. I live righteously and in holiness from the place of sonship, not for the place of sonship. I live obediently to the commands of God because I have God's smile, not to attain God's smile necessarily. And so this is what he's saying right off the bat. And this is a beautiful verse because we've kind of understood God being father and us being God's children as a New Testament truth. No, it's Bible truth. The Israelites understood this. And here's a perfect example. We're sons. We're children of God. We've been adopted into his family and that is magnified in the New Testament. But what's the difference in the New Testament teaching that we're children of God compared to the Old Testament? Does anybody know? Because there is a difference. Yes, Isaac? We become children of God when we receive Jesus Christ. Yes, it is through our relationship in Jesus Christ. Through our covenant in Him. Absolutely. And there's even more than that. What's the difference between this idea of the family of God in the New Testament and differentiation between the family of God in the Old Testament? Because the, the, the principle is still the same, but there is a difference. We're his bride. We're his bride, sure. So we understand that we have this intimate relationship with the Lord. It's an Old Testament truth as well. But think about the implications of the gospel and how it makes it available to who? Gentiles. So the idea of the family of God is nothing new in relationship to God. What is new is that the family of God is now extended towards Gentiles and it's not limited to the nation of Israel. That's the good news. That's Ephesians 2. That's the first part of the whole book of Ephesians. Where he talks about how they're elect and how they're predestined and how they're chosen. What's the language there for? He's speaking to a specific audience. You are Gentiles. But now you are available to become adopted by God where that was limited to a specific nation known as the Israelites. Do we see? And so he says, you are the sons of the Lord your God. And then he's about to give some practical instructions. And I think uh, 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 perhaps maybe poor analogy, maybe it's a good analogy, you'll be the judge of that. What came to my mind was understanding the British royal family. Because the British royal family, though they are royalty, if you were married into the family or if you were born into the family, though you had the privilege of being known as royalty, there was still a code of conduct. Still to this day, that, that family operates under a different code of conduct in order to make themselves distinct from the rest. Or better to say, because they are royalty, they ought to operate under a different mindset in every detail. You can look this up, that from the way they dress to the way they deal with each other and deal with their manners on the dinner table, all of that is dictated by a royal conduct because they are royalty. And I think that's a beautiful way of understanding our relationship to God. Like God is our father, that is true, but God is also the king of the universe. And you and I have been adopted into royalty. You and I have been adopted into his family and because our names are linked to his name, it demands by default a way of life in every detail that would represent him well as king. So it's not a burden, it's an honor. It's not slavish legalism, it's a privilege. 
And God invites us into that, and that's exactly what he does in this portion of Scripture. Do you realize that you're sons of the King of glory? Do you realize that whether you want to or not, if you've identified yourself as a Christian, you represent him, and people are watching you. And so this is the motivation. That's very true in the New Testament, and it's especially true in the Old Testament, because this nation had a role to be a light to the rest of the nations. And it demanded a specific code of holiness. And so as you read this, you might be thinking, okay, I don't understand. But remember, what's the best question to ask when you read the Bible, especially a portion that may not be directly related to the New Testament relationship with Christ? What is it? What's God's heart behind this? What is God's heart behind this? What do I learn about God through these commands? What do I learn about God through texts like this? And that's what we read in verse 1. What Moses is going to immediately go into concerning the people of God who are sons of the Lord was this. How to treat your bodies. How to treat your bodies. You may not see that right away, but we will understand it as we dig deeper. All of this is from verse 1. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. And we might think to ourselves, okay, what does this have to do with anything? And here's the understanding. It does deal with the body, but it deals with how the body is treated. My individual body is being treated in light of how I respond to the death of another. And so this is not a random command. God is speaking in a specific context. And the context of the nation of Israel was that, even to this day, this is true to some degree in specific places in the world, that their surrounding nations would respond to death in an unusual way. And how they would do it is this. If somebody died as a loved one or a leader or whatever it may be, they would take it upon themselves to cut their arms, cut their chest, cut their faces, cut parts of their bodies until blood would gush out. Or they would cut their hair in a specific way in order to express distress, sorrow, grief, pain. It was a physical way of kind of dealing with the emotional sorrow that they were experiencing. And we don't have a full out detail of why they did this. It could go even beyond that. It can go, this is just speculation, that perhaps they dealt with this physically because emotionally they wanted to escape that pain and they would try to replace it with a physical one. But what is clear according to the Bible is that pagan nations during this day would offer up as an act of devotion to their false god some kind of determination, some kind of worship some kind of appeasement by cutting themselves and gushing out blood do we see that anywhere in the bible in the old testament stories mount carmel mount carmel with elijah and the false prophets of baal first kings 18:28 they're trying to get their god baal to do something to send fire down on the altar what do they do and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. So it's possible that this command in Deuteronomy links with the pagan practice of trying to get their deity to do something and pertaining to death, perhaps to say, oh, 
oh, be merciful to the soul that passed on from this life into the next life. And they would, in a sense, sacrifice something of themselves on behalf of the dead and trying to get the flip-flop deity who is always having an attitude. This is how the pagan gods were viewed. You had some good days and bad days. To shine a light of some kind of grace upon the deceased. We see God giving this instruction to the people and even echoing it in the book of Jeremiah. So you don't have to turn there, but he says this in Jeremiah. He says it in Jeremiah 6.16. He says, both great and small shall die in this land. Jeremiah 16.6. They shall not be buried and no one shall lament for them or cut himself or make himself bald for them. So he says it again. He says this in more than one place. I mean, this is very serious to God for him to repeat this. Now, quiz time. Who believed that the Israelites obeyed this command? Who believed that they disobeyed it? In the very same book in Jeremiah, chapter 41, verse 5. 80 men, this is Israelites, 80 men arrived from Shechem and Shiloh and Samaria with their beards shaved and their clothes torn and their bodies gashed, bringing grain offerings and incense to present at the temple of the Lord. So the Israelites have now come to a place where they have adopted the practices of these pagan nations and have related to the Lord that way. So they're coming to the temple of the Lord, not just with grain offerings, not with torn clothes, which was allowed to, to display sorrow, but with blood dripping from them. And so they went against this command. No surprise. That's the whole point of the book of the Old Testament, really. To show how we fail to obey God. And I think to myself, what does this have to do again with me as a believer? And I believe there are at least two principles with that question. What does it say about God? What does it say about me in light of the new covenant lens that I'm wearing as I'm reading the Old Testament? Number one. I think that this can teach us something about death and how we see it. That we as Christians do not view or respond to death like the world does. We as believers in the living Christ do not react to the death of another the same way that an unbelieving world would. Common verse, 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 13, heads up, there's a lot of verses for tonight's Bible study. Paul says, but we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Don't you love that term for death in the New Testament? Sleep. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, when we understand death in the New Testament, in Jesus Christ, in the New Covenant, it is referred to as sleep, meaning you're going to wake up one day, meaning it is temporary. Now, we do not believe in something called soul sleep. The idea there is that if you die, that just like when you fall asleep, the next time you will wake up is at the resurrection. We believe absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. That the moment you give up your last breath, your soul is in the presence of Christ if you know him. And that your body will await to be resurrected, glorified as a testimony of God's redemption. He says about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now Paul, instrument of the Holy Spirit, is being very realistic. He did not say 
that you may not grieve. There's no demand in the Bible that you and I should not grieve the loss of a loved one. But we don't grieve the same way that the world does. If there's any way to describe our mourning, it is this, a hope-filled mourning. Because the pain of separation is real. The ache of losing somebody that I can't see on a regular basis like I used to. I can't hear their voice anymore. I can't spend time with them. I can't look at them in the eyes. That is a very real pain. A pain that Jesus in his humanity experienced. A pain that Jesus, who knew full well that he was going to resurrect the body of Lazarus, still in his humanity wept. He had the revelation. He knew he was going there on a mission. He delayed his journey for the purpose of resurrecting, making a statement that I'm able to bring somebody back from the dead. And yet still we see Jesus in his compassion, friend of Lazarus, weeping. The Bible is very realistic. We should never look at anybody less spiritual who is broken over the loss of a loved one or the loss of anyone for that matter. But there's a hope in that grieving. There's a celebration even if that person is a believer. There's a joy in that. I love how some people have termed some funerals. They don't even call them funerals. Some Christians don't even call funerals funerals. They call them homecomings. So-and-so's homecoming. So-and-so's homecoming. And yes, people go up there and they cry when they tell stories and testimonies of that sister or that brother. But at the same time, they can sing with their hands lifted up because they know that they're in the presence of Jesus. This is what makes us distinct. This is what makes us so attractive is that the book of Job describes death as what? The king of terror. It's a phrase in the book of Job that describes death. It is the king of terror. And yet we can look at the face of the king of terror with a smile. Because Christ conquered death. Side note, if death is the king of terror, how horrible is hell for people to want to die? Isn't that a scary thought? That death is known as the king of terror, yet people in hell will cry to die because of how torturous it really is. I know that's not popular, but it's Bible. I look at David, and I see a man who grieved many times in his life, but I see him grieve differently with a revelation that he had. Remember David, right? We were talking about David in prayer, right? right? David, a man after God's heart, Messed up royally, no pun intended. Commits adultery. Some would argue that he didn't even just commit adultery. He raped Bathsheba, some would say. Then he kills her husband to try to cover the sin. Impregnates her. And thinks he gets away with it, perhaps. Who knows? Then Nathan the prophet comes one day and he points his bony finger in David's face after telling him a parable having him indirectly confess his own sin. It says, you are the man. David realized that he had sinned against God. He did not even hesitate to repent. He breaks up in a psalm, creating me a clean heart, O God. Psalms 51. And what happens? Part of the judgment was this, that David would lose the very son that he had with Bathsheba. He would lose that baby. And so what does he do? He goes into fasting mode. He goes into prayer mode. He goes into crying out to God day and night. He was glued to the floor where even his companions would come and try to lift him off and he would shake them off. And he pleaded with God that this baby would live and not die. 
And then news came in, the baby dies. And his advisors come and they're whispering and he's still seeking God and he can now assess the situation, David, realizing that they're coming to tell him that the baby is dead. And he asks, is the baby gone? And they say yes. And what do you think David does? Do you think he continues to mourn and grieve? He doesn't do that. He gets up, he washes himself, he anoints himself, and it tells us in 2 Samuel 2.20, look what he does. Then David arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. They didn't just go to the house of God, he went to the house of God to worship God. It tells me something about prayer that sometimes even when we fast and seek God and he doesn't do it, he doesn't answer. Prayer might not necessarily change God's mind, but it will change ours. Prayer does something to our character. Brokenness in the presence of God. When God delays an answer or does not answer, there is always a consequence and it has to do with you and I and our outlook on life goes into the house of God and he worships God and as he worships he then goes to his own house and it says here and when he asked they set food before him and he ate and the guys that are watching him are scratching their heads thinking this doesn't make any sense but see as much as David was an old testament prophet king musician godly man he operated very much with a new covenant lens and so they asked how is it that you're responding this way you were broken when he was alive, and now that he's dead, you're worshiping, you're eating, you anoint yourself. And then David responds this way in verse 23 of chapter 12. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. He knew something. He knew that this baby, he knew that this child that was taken early in life was in the presence of God. And David knew as a righteous man, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, right? David wrote. He knew that one day he would go and meet with this child again, though he would not return to him. That says something to some degree about children and their accountability before God. Though we are all born in sin because of our link with Adam, there is an understanding of accountability. The Bible doesn't give us an age. Every person is different, but God is a just God. And he knew that this baby child will not be judged, that he would be in the loving arms of his God, and one day he's going to see him again. And so he was able to have a hope there. But then I read something about David later on, because he had another son who died. Much older than this baby, obviously, because he was able to cause a rebellion against David as a king. He was a son who was vicious in his ambition to dethrone his father and to sit upon his own throne and become the ruler of Israel. He creates a mess. And David with his remnant go into one side and Absalom and his army go to another and they're about to fight it out. And David pleads with his men. He says, please, whatever you do, whatever you do, don't kill him. Don't kill Absalom. Don't take him out. Please, I'm begging you, keep him alive. Did they obey that command? Absalom was found hung with his hair on a branch. And he was killed from that, like a pinata. News comes back to David as he awaits to hear what happened. He realizes that there's victory, but then he inquires to see what happened to 
my son Absalom. And the news was given. We took care of him. It's in the same book, 2 Samuel 18, and I read his reaction in verse 33, and it's very much different than what I see in chapter 12. It says, And the king was deeply moved, 2 Samuel 18, 33, and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. A very big difference in reaction to someone's death. Why did David react so calmly in worship when it came to his baby's death? But when it came to Absalom's death, not only does he grieve the death of his son, he actually says, oh, that I would have died instead of my son Absalom. Speculation. Disagree with me if you'd like. I think one reason is because if David operated under the revelation that his son as a baby, innocent in his understanding of accountability, was in heaven, then Absalom, as a man who fully knew what he was doing, who didn't very much show any hint of righteousness or any relationship with God, maybe David responded in such a way because he knew where Absalom was. He knew where Absalom perhaps was based on the fruit of his own life. And so grieved was David that he had wished, knowing that he was in right relationship with God, that he would have died instead of his son. We have a hope as believers. No matter how tragic life is, no matter who's taken out early, no matter who's taken out by anything, if they are in Christ, we don't grieve the same way that the world does. And there's a second lesson concerning this idea. of This is all from the first verse of chapter 14. Number one was we don't grieve the same way that the world does. We don't respond to death the same way that the pagans do. But number two, what I learned from this verse is that God puts a supreme value on our bodies. He puts a supreme value on our bodies. Self-mutilation is not only a wrong view in terms of how we respond to death, for whatever reason it may be. In the New Testament, the only clear indication, the only clear explicit view of self-harm is not only associated with death, it's actually associated with the demonic. It's found in the book of Mark, chapter 5, Verse 3, where Jesus is traveling to the region of the Gerasenes, and he's about to encounter what? A man possessed by demons. Not just one demon, a legion of demons, which was a military term that the Romans used to describe hundreds, if not thousands, of troops. So when Jesus asked, what is your name? He says, legion. You know what he's saying? There are thousands of demons inside of me. And when the Bible describes this man who is controlled by these demonic forces is not shy of giving us characteristics of his behavior that reveal something about certain behavior. It says in verse 3, he lived among the tombs. 
and no one can bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. Supernatural strength. Supernatural strength. Mind you, later on we understand that this man was not clothed at all. So he's naked. He's out of his mind. Clearly he is pushed away from society and pushed away from his family. He's living in a cemetery. And men are trying to keep this person controlled. So they chain him. He breaks these chains. And it says... No one had the strength to subdue him. Now look what it says here in verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, and look at this, and cutting himself with stones. Now, I am not making the argument, because this is a very real thing in our day, where many people have taken upon themselves to actually cut I am not making the argument or the case that those who do so are demonically possessed. That's not true. But I will say this, that the Bible is not shy of associating such behavior to clearly be influenced by evil spirits. In other words, it is from the pit of hell. And this man who was possessed out of his control by demons, the demons inside of it found pleasure in this individual taking sharp rocks and making sure that he was gushing and bruising and cutting himself. And I was reading that today and I was thinking to myself, why? Why out of all the things that a demon can drive a person to, would a demon or many demons drive an individual to harm themselves? I think there are many reasons, but I think this is the primary reason. That whatever God seems to value supremely, Satan loves to attempt to destroy. See, God doesn't just value your soul. God doesn't just value your spirit. God values this thing called your body. And in fact, New Testament truth tells us that when we come into relationship with Christ, he doesn't just own your soul, he owns your body and mine. And this body has many purposes. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the vehicle by which I can fulfill the will of God. Do you realize that? That the moment this body is gone, we finish our mission on the earth. It's very simple truth. And so of course Satan would love to destroy the very thing that God wants to use for his glory. Is there any, this is Bible study, so is there any truth in the Bible that declares the value that he puts on our bodies other than the fact that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit? Do, do we have any indication that this thing called the body, flesh and blood, head to toe, God really, really, really values? Let me ask it this way. When it comes to the resurrection, when it comes to your body and mind being resurrected, is the resurrection going to be this same body left alone and God giving me a new glory body? Or is the resurrection God taking this body and transforming it into a glorious one? 
That's a distinction. Because sometimes we use the terminology, we're going to get new bodies. We're going to have glorified bodies. And the misunderstanding of that is this old body is going to be dealt with. It's going to be finished. It's going to collect dust. Worms are going to eat it up, and it's going to be disintegrated. And I'm going to get this brand new body. Is that what the New Testament teaches about the resurrection? What does it teach about the resurrection? Because it says something about how God works in redemption. It tells us something holistic about salvation. And the truth about what happens to our bodies is found in a very clear verse in Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Look what the Bible says about your body and mind in Christ. Philippians 3, 20 to 21. Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now look what he says, verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So the resurrection deals with transformation of this body. That, that it's going to be a renewed body, not absent from this one, this present one, but with this present one. And you think, why? Why didn't God just disregard our bodies, discard our bodies, and just give us brand new ones? It's because God wants to make a statement. Through the resurrection, he wants to declare something about his power because the reality of sin is this, that sin corrupted everything from our souls, our spirits, to nature itself, down to our bodies. And through the cross and through the blood and through the resurrection, what Jesus wants to make a statement with our bodies is this. Though you corrupted this flesh, I'm able to redeem it again. What sin was able to corrupt, I am able to restore and transform. And that's where that statement comes in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? That's in the context of our bodies being redeemed. Not our souls or our spirit only, but our bodies. It's to make this grand declaration. I save all of you, not just part of you. Sin was able to destroy so much, the human race. But through the blood of Christ, I am able to transform it again for my glory. That's what's being said there. So our bodies are very valuable to Christ. And see how Satan comes in? He demonizes a man. And he wants to destroy. Oh, you're created in the image of God? Let me destroy that. Oh, you want to resurrect this body? Let me destroy that. And I am fully aware that people struggle with this. Even professing Christians struggle with this. And I am no psychologist, nor do I offer any type of psychological advice, though that is maybe part of it. I will say this. The same answer for you is the same answer was for this man. Jesus needs to step into your life. Jesus steps onto the scene. And what happens to the man is this. He's delivered and he is sitting before Christ. It says, clothed and in his right mind. That is not the will of God for your life. See, I want to touch on this for a little bit. Self-harm is not an attempt to die. That's what suicide is. Self-harm is an attempt to live. 
See, the reason why many people take it upon themselves to cut is because there's a greater pain that doesn't involve blood. And that pain wants to be escaped by a different type of pain. It's almost a means of distracting. It's almost a means of escaping an emotional pain, a mental pain that is very real. And so there is a pursuit of trying to eclipse that hurt with some other kind of hurt. But see, the realization has to come to this, that no matter how much you try to numb the pain with a different type of pain, you will never be able to escape pain. That's why it's a cycle. That's why some have even deemed it as an addiction. Because people continue to return to that behavior, and it almost becomes like a drug. But I tell you tonight in Jesus' name, that deliverance is possible in the power of Christ. It is not God's will. And God is not mad at you or angry at you for even entertaining the thought of that or even attempting it once or twice. But I will tell you this. Do not keep that in secret. Seek counseling. Seek your pastor and go to war with that thing. Because according to the New Testament... We know that it is nothing but a suggestion from the devil himself for anybody to participate in such things. I tell you, don't be scared. I tell you, don't be fearful. I tell you, even if you have scars, that there's one who took scars upon himself and with his blood, he can redeem you and change you and deliver you. That's a guarantee from the Bible. That's what I see in this. I see a man who's filled with demons to the point where he's running around naked, exiled from his family, and yet there is hope for him. I'm guessing you haven't gone that far yet. Even if you have, the same Christ is the same Christ that we're worshiping tonight. He wants to set you free, and he's able to. That's a promise from the Bible. So there's a value on the body that God presents here in verse 1. Now we're finished with verse 1. We come to verse 2. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Verse 3. Now, here's a second set of instructions. The first one had to deal with our bodies and how we deal with death and how we respond to death. Here's a second set. In line with the body, it has to do with diet. So now God wants to speak to the Israelites about how and what they should eat. And he gets very detailed. He gets detailed to the point where he talks about the menu, about the creatures on the earth. He talks about the menu of the birds of the air. He, he talks about the menu of the, the creatures in the sea. He even gets down to the appetizers known as the bugs that are crawling on the earth. And he gives specific instructions of what to eat and what not to eat. So let's look at our Bibles quickly and see verse 6. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals, you may eat. Verse 9. Of all that are in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales, you may eat. Verse 11. You may eat all clean birds, except we see verse 12 to verse 19, and he lists the different birds that we cannot eat. Verse 19, and all the winged insects are unclean for you. 
they shall not be eaten. The question is still there. We know in the New Testament that this menu doesn't apply to us. Some would argue it's true, but then we have to go to the New Testament and see how in the New Covenant, Christ cancels this. But I want to know something about God's heart. And I want to know what he has in mind behind this. And so I'm looking at this text and I'm going, Lord, why? Why yes some things and why no some other things? Why is this bird acceptable and this one prohibited? Why this kind of fish, but I can't have lobster with butter? Why? Why? Ready for this revelation? We don't know. There's no clear indication to why in the Old Covenant, God created this diet plan for the Israelites. The only obvious reason is found here in verse 21. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. So it has to do something with their, them being distinct. It has to do with something with them being consecrated to the Lord. But the real nitty-gritty reasons why, we don't have the reasons. Now, some people have given speculation to why God did this. And here's one of them. The, one of the reasons why some believe God gave these instructions was primarily for hygiene. So God was truly concerned about their health and longevity in their health. And so he gave them what you and I go to a dietitian for. You can eat this, don't eat this. Less of this, more of that. None of that, more of that. Even if you don't want it, that's what you have to. And so God, as a father, God as a faithful ruler, wants to preserve his people with their bodies, because that's part of life, and he gives these instructions. That's, that's one way. Another reason some speculate is that because some of these animals were things that the pagans would do in participation of their worship, whether they ate them or sacrificed them or did some kind of weird thing with them. And the Lord said, that's not how you're going to participate in any type of work. Even for your eating, that's not going to happen. And so he cancels out certain animals that were adopted by pagans. It's not clear, though. And where many stand is on this. There is no clear reason. But this is a test to the trust in the wisdom of God to simply submit to this command and not really getting a reason out of it. Parents, you know this. Sometimes you give an instruction to your child. And what is that question that children love to ask? Why? Why? Why, Dad? Why, Mom? And you know in yourself that you don't necessarily need to explain why you gave that instruction. But you know in your wisdom that they just need to trust in you because you have their well-being in mind. And so for the Israelite, at this time, they were simply called to trust in the Lord with this command, even though it may have not made much sense to them. And I think here that it's important to make a distinction with the New Testament. What does the New Testament say about our food? Because this is a very real thing. I'm telling you, there are people here who not only believe that we are to live this way with our diet, but implement it and demand it and cause others to follow it too. Text comes to mind. Any text come to mind? Yes? Peter's vision. Are we all familiar with Peter's vision? Jesus appears to Peter, and he brings down a blanket on four corners with all these creatures and animals and all these different things that are, according to this, unclean. And Jesus says, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, no way. I'm not doing that. I know what my Bible says. And what Jesus was trying to say there is a twofold message. 
One, these unclean creatures were a picture of what? The Gentiles, those who were outside of the people of Israel that were known as unclean. Now they are acceptable to Christ. Now they are acceptable to God. Go and preach the gospel so that they can come and be my sons and daughters. And the other understanding is that what God created, he created to be good. And these things are not deemed as unclean anymore. They are acceptable as long as what? And that's what Paul teaches in 1 Timothy 4. I would encourage you to turn there because many people go to Peter's vision to defend this doctrine, which is right. Yes, absolutely. But then 1 Timothy 4, Paul expounds on it to know how we ought to relate to diet in terms of things, whether they're clean or unclean, according to the Old Testament. 1 Timothy 4, let's begin in verse 1. Paul warns, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Let's go back to verse 1 very quickly. There are some people that at one point would have held to the biblical understanding of life, God, practice, that will depart from it, and listen to this, not just wrong teaching, but teachings that come from demons. Why would demons be interested in teaching? Because teaching leads to lifestyle. That's why. And you think, what are demons going to teach? What are evil spirits going to convince people to do? Cut themselves as a practice? That's not what Paul says. Deceitful spirits will try to encourage people to do the following in verse 2 and 3. To the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, talking about false teachers who forbid marriage. Number one, who forbid marriage. And two, and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. There are two teachings that will come from demonic influences, Paul says. And one of them is this. Don't get married. Why? Because if you're more spiritual, you're going to prove that by abstaining from marriage. There was a teaching in Paul's day, and it's a very real teaching today. And it was this, that everything physical or pleasurable is wrong. Only the things of the Spirit are good. Anything that tickles the flesh or makes you feel good, whether it's marriage and relationship with your spouse or eating a good meal, that stuff is sinful, it's evil. It pertains to the body. See, there was a view, Gnosticism, that said, if it feels good, if it does something to this, you're sinning. So you abstain from sex in marriage. You abstain from food. And you have people throughout history, even church history, that have attempted to prove their spirituality by sticking themselves in some mountain cave, starving themselves, and not just starving themselves, not just separating themselves from community and the idea of marriage, but torturing themselves on top of that to prove to God that I'm really spiritual. And Paul says, it's demonic. It's demonic. So there will be those who will say, if you're really spiritual, you won't get all romantic and find somebody to build a family with. If you're really spiritual, you won't eat this, this, and this, and that. You'll eat, you'll eat obviously, because you have to eat, but you're not going to like what you eat. You have to make it distasteful. You can't enjoy what you eat. This is a real thing. And Paul says, listen, in the next verse, that's not true. That's not true at all. Why? For everything created by God is good. 
And nothing is to be rejected if what? It is received with thanksgiving. It is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Simple as that. So how I relate to marriage, how I relate to foods even, all foods, according to Paul, is that I use it as a means of worship. And I allow it to cause in me a gratitude for the Lord and towards the Lord. And I relate it to him giving a good gift for me and to me. That's how. It's very simple. And so you and I can learn at least this one thing. Not I am supposed to bind myself by these rules. But what? I see a God who cares about me. I see a God who cares about every detail of my life. I see a God who wants to govern every aspect of my existence for his glory. But with the New Testament, I see that he's not doing it for my lack of joy. He's not doing it for me not to enjoy life, but to enjoy life and to know maximum pleasure according to his wisdom. We come to the last part. We see here in the final part of chapter 14, he talks about how to handle your body, both in how you respond to death, both in how we treat it with how we deal with our own pain, how we deal with food. Now it comes to something. If you were uncomfortable with the food thing, here we come to maybe something more uncomfortable for many people. Money. Possessions. Material. We see here in verse 22 down that it, it talks about this. And if you were here last Sunday, we discussed this in greater detail. So some of this might be reviewed, but there's going to be a different understanding as well. From verse 22 down to verse 29, Moses is going to teach in detail something about what we know as tithing. And tithing is a practice that many know as this. You take 10% of your income, whether it's a weekly thing or monthly or yearly, your yearly income, and you set apart 10% of that and you give it to your local church in order for your, it's almost like a tax for a religious institution, but you're giving it for the purpose of sustaining an establishment where you're receiving spiritual benefit from. And the idea of 10%, does anybody know where the idea of 10% came from? Why 10%? Why not 1%? Why not 5%? Abraham tithed 10% to Melchizedek. So we see Abram, and not just Abram, but Jacob. So let me read this to you. You don't have to turn there, but I want to read this to you. In Genesis 14, 20, it says, And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. This is a priest, Melchizedek, speaking to Abram. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Later on in Genesis 28, verse 22, Jacob, after his experience at Bethel, where he saw that ladder and he saw the Lord standing above it, he responds to a vow with a vow, and he says in verse 22, And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So what people have understood was that we see Abram, we see Jacob, before the Mosaic law was established, right? Before these commands that we see here were established, they had an intuition to give 10% to the Lord. And so it's the practice of many and even the teachings of many to say, give 10% of your income to your local church. But when I read this portion of scripture, I realize that tithing is not as simple as that. In fact, we're going to realize that tithing is not limited to 10%. If you do the calculations, 
It's more. It's more than 10%. According to the Mosaic law, when you gather up all the tithes, it is not what Abram and Jacob did out of their free will. There is a set number that some believe to be 20-something percent. Hang tight. Verse 22. Look what he says. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. There is a general yearly tithe. And what the Israelites were to do is very simple. They were to take their grain, their wine, the firstborn of their herd and their flock, and year by year, they were to take a portion of that, come to the temple, come to the house of God, and they were to dedicate that to the Lord. And as they dedicated it, they would also participate in eating some of it in the presence of God as an expression of fellowship. And they would walk away only to do it another time at the end of the year. There was a yearly thing. And listen, if it was too much, if you were too far, and you had to travel down to Jerusalem, look what he says in verse 25. He says, if it's too far, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. So it's saying if you can't transport all these things for practical purposes, sell, take it all for money, go and, and go to the temple and there will be a market, so to speak, where you can buy this stuff and then you can offer that sacrifice to the Lord right there. Do we see that in the New Testament anywhere? In John chapter 2, Jesus steps into the temple, and what does he do? He sees them buying and selling in the temple. And righteous indignation comes up. He makes a whip of cords, and he whips them out of the place, flipping tables and flipping and letting these doves go loose. And think to yourself, it's commanded right here. Why would Jesus... Because many people have understood that story that they should not have sold things in the temple. People were to come and bring their own sacrifices, and people started selling out of the house of God. That was what Jesus was mad about. But we just read that that was actually instituted by God. So them selling and buying in the temple wasn't what Jesus was upset with. What was he upset with? They were making a profit for selfish gain. So they took this command... And they realized that it was a burden for people to travel from north or south or wherever they were coming from. And so we can, we can up the prices just a little bit so that we can put a little bit of extra buck in our pocket. And when Jesus realized that they took a command of God and turned it for their profit and their gain, that's when he became angry. And so it wasn't the practice itself of selling and buying in the house of God. It was the motivation behind it that Christ turned the place upside down and cleansed it. But there wasn't just a yearly tithe. I want you to see here in verse 28, look what it says. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. Okay, so I have a yearly tithe, but he says, no, 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 not just a yearly tithe, every three years. On that third year, you in your town, with all the other faithful Israelites, you're going to do the same thing. You're going to take all your stuff, and instead of bringing it to the temple, you're going to bring it up and gather it in your towns. Now, why? Because of the next verse. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, he was a minister. 
And the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So God had something else in mind. There's going to be another tithe. Every three years, and this tithe, what I have in mind is so it would fulfill the needs of the Levites who are serving you in a spiritual way and for the people that are needy, poor, fatherless, widows that can't afford what you can afford. Do you see how the tithing principle is much more than 10%? I say that because people kind of push the 10% aspect. And that's fine. That's, I'll explain how that's not necessarily wrong. But the principle of tithing, the percentage is more than that. The, the observance of that is, is greater if we want to be faithful to the whole text. A yearly tithe and a tithe every three years. So this is the ultimate question, right, that people debate on. How does tithing apply to the new covenant. How does my income and my relationship with the Lord, how does that work? What rule do I go by? What principle do I go by? I had an individual who came up to me and they were very sincere. I mean, you don't meet a lot of people that are concerned about tithing. So I was a little bit surprised when this individual came up to me and they said, brother, I need to talk to you. And I thought to myself, it's, who knows? Is it gonna be about this? Is it gonna be about that? It's probably a personal issue, something going on at home. And he sat me down and he goes, I need to know how much I have to give to the Lord. I'm like, are you like joking or really? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I want to know, you know, God bless me with a new job. There's a new income coming in now. And I really want to know how does this whole thing of giving work? Is it 10%? Is it? And the New Testament gives the answer. So if you're writing notes, you can write this. What is the percentage of my giving to the Lord? And the answer is in 2 Corinthians, verse 7 of chapter 9. Here's the percentage in the New Testament. Chapter 9, verse 7. Each one must give as he has made up in his mind. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So what's the percentage? It's the first part of verse 7. Make up one in your mind. So the 10% idea is not emphasized in the New Testament, but it doesn't cancel the practice of giving. It's true. It's there. And if we were there, who was here last Sunday in the English service when we were talking about giving? Better question, who was not here last Sunday? Where were you? No, I'm joking. Where? <laughs> last Sunday. I know people here are different churches and stuff. So who, who is not? Okay, so we talked about last Sunday. We talked about giving in the New Testament and what that looks like. And I, I made a disclaimer then, and I'm going to make the disclaimer now. I am fully aware of this concept of giving pertaining to money being a very uncomfortable subject. And the reason why is because many have perverted this teaching for, again, the same reason why Jesus was angry due to profit, selfish gain. But just like any other doctrine that is abused, we cannot respond in a reactionary way where we go to another extreme and cancel out that practice altogether. I use the example of the Holy Spirit all the time. Many people deem things that are Holy Spirit manifestations, and there is nothing in the Bible that says that's the Holy Spirit. And the reaction of so many people, even denominations, is if that's what the Holy Spirit does, or if that's what people say, they go the complete opposite way and 
any type of manifestation, any type of emotion, any type of personal testimony of a subjective experience with God is heresy. So they've gone the other extreme. And that's true with many doctrines, including the idea of giving. People go the opposite way. So the moment a preacher opens up a text and talks about giving, it's like, what's going on here? They're all after my money. And I understand that. I understand that. Because unfortunately, again, many people do abuse it. But I can't ignore it in the Bible. You know, we always talk about be faithful to the whole counsel of God. Preach the whole word of God. And so people say, yeah, preach on hell. Preach on holiness. Preach on repentance. And it's like giving, it's like, mm, no, 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 no. Money, mm-mm. Crossing the line now. Holy Spirit, no, 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 no. no. If we're going to be faithful to the whole word of God, let's be faithful to the whole word of God. How do I understand this? Well, each one will make it up in his own mind. This is a personal thing between you and God. And the same advice I gave to this brother, I will give to you. You talk to the Lord. And you ask God what you want to give. You ask the Lord to put something on your heart. You ask the Lord what it is that you want to offer to the Lord. And he'll make that very clear to you. It might be a consistent thing. Hey, there are some people that do 10%. There's nothing wrong with that either. Whatever comes to your mind in your relationship with God, go with that. This is what Paul is saying. But though the percentage is not as strict as the Old Testament, the purpose of giving is very much the same. Say, what is it? Look at 1 Corinthians 9. So you're at 2 Corinthians. Flip a few pages back and go to chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. And look at verse 13 of chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. Paul is speaking in this chapter of his right as an apostle. As a minister, he's explaining his right, but this is what he's doing in this chapter. He's explaining though, though he has a right as a minister to be compensated for his ministry and his work, he laid that right aside so that he could present the gospel in a way that would be free from obstacles or hindrances or any false idea that this guy's after my wallet. So Paul says that. Nevertheless, Paul still defines the right of a minister. And look, it's so interesting what he does here. He goes, do you know that those who are employed in the temple, he's arguing historically now. And he's going to the Old Testament to make his case for a new covenant principle. He goes, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? So he's going back to the Levites. He's going back to the priests. What we're reading in Deuteronomy 14, he goes, go back there and read that the ones who devoted their lives into the house of God and the work were getting their benefit from it. They were, getting, they were getting the food from the altar, from the very thing that they were serving through and in is what they got their compensation from. And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. Look what he says. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. It's very awkward to teach on this from the pulpit. But just cancel out the idea. Just imagine you're reading the scriptures you're hearing from the word of God itself. Paul says this in more than one place. And the text that we focused on last Sunday was Galatians 6.6. 6. I just want you to see this. We're not going to touch on this long. Galatians 6.6. 6. Look what he says to the people of God in the household of faith. One who is taught the word must share with all good things with the one who teaches. And we think, why is Paul giving this instruction? It's because he has a supreme value on the word of God. 
and the value of the word of God in the house of God. And he wants to make sure that there would be no barriers to the ministry of the word being declared and showered upon the people. And so there needs to be a maintenance, just like in the Old Testament, a maintenance amongst the house of God that come from the people of God so that the work of God can continue. We're closing here. The purpose is still the same. You know why the purpose is still the same? Because he goes back to the Old Testament to make his case. In order for a ministry, for a ministry to be sustained, to, to continue in longevity, to go on and do the work of God, it must be met with some kind of monetary investment. That's what Paul's saying. That's all. He's just saying it plain and clear. And it's uncomfortable for many, I understand. But when we understand what I'm about to say now in closing, I hope that it would create something else in our hearts. Go back to Deuteronomy 14. Look at the reasons why God taught his people to give. Look at verse 23 of Deuteronomy 43. He goes, And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, that's where they were supposed to go to give, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock. Now look at this that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Hold on for a second. I hope we all desire the fear of God in this place because we've, we've taught many times on the importance and the value that comes from fearing God. And I've always limited to attaining the fear of God to two things. One of them is when David said, incline my heart to fear your name. He prayed. He says, God, take this heart that loves to do its own thing. Take it and bind it to the fear of God. That's one way. Deuteronomy teaches that you and I ought to hear the word of God, that we may learn to fear, the God, fear our God. How? By understanding his attributes and his characters and his holiness and all these wonderful traits of who he is. So Bible prayer, that's how I relate to the fear of God. It's wonderful. But then I come upon this text, and I am astounded to realize that there is another means to attaining the fear of God. I have never, up to this point, realized that there is a possibility in enriching my fear for the Lord in the act of giving. He says, you're going to give your tithe. Why? That you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. What? In giving. There's something of revelation that comes with it. And the revelation and the practice of giving, and however you come to a conclusion with your convictions on that truth, whether it's a percentage, whether it's weekly, monthly, whatever, in that act, something will dawn on your soul, apparently, according to the Bible and its wisdom, and it is this. This is what God wanted to teach them. That when you travel to Jerusalem to give your possession, and when you come to that place of worship and you give unto the Lord, you are realizing, God gave me this. You are realizing, God supplies my needs. You are realizing, God gave me this job. You are realizing, I am completely dependent upon the Lord. It's yours, God. It's yours. I can't even put my name on it because you gave it to me in the first place. Oh, God, I thank you. So it's in that practice that there is a revelation that is produced. 
When you learn how to let go of something, you realize in that moment, this is God's. This is God's. This is God's. And not only that, in that act of giving, you are not only declaring in that act or realizing that act that what I'm letting go is from God in the first place, but secondly, I'm about to let this go and I could really maybe use it for different purposes, but I'm going to trust God that he's going to bless me when I do this. So there's an element of, I can hold on to this, but I'm going to let go of this for the purpose of God's kingdom being advanced and I'm going to trust that he's going to supply my need. God, I fear you in this. I trust you in this. I'm doing math in my head right now. I know a lot of other things I can do with this money, but I'm going to give it to you. Now, I do not advocate anybody who is in any financial strain to give to a point in which they suffer. I don't think that. There are people who have abused this to the point where they say they do many things with it, and I don't want to get into it. If you are not taking care of the needs of your family, all these different things, all these criteria, that's a whole other teaching for another time, there is a principle of wisdom in this. But there's always an act. Can we always think about that? Whenever it comes to giving, we always think, I know I can do something else with this. I know that they can, this can buy something else. I know. But in this act, I'm going to trust God and fear God and give it to him and believe that he's going to respond in faithfulness. You're going to learn the fear of God. That's what he teaches. In verse 26, look what he says here. He says, and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God. And rejoice, you and your household. So in the act of giving, not only will I learn something of fearing God, but I will learn something of joy. He says, when you come to that place and you give, you're going to rejoice, you and your household. This might be mind-boggling to us, but it's the truth that Jesus declared as Paul revealed it in Acts 20. It is more blessed to what? Give than to receive. It's a greater blessing to give than it is to get. And maybe you've known that joy. Maybe you've known that joy where you know somebody you love them truly, and you are coming up to their birthday, and you're going to get ready for a gift. And you've planned this gift, and you've spent money on this gift, you spent time on this gift, because you are anticipating that as an expression of your love, when they open up that or they pull it out of the bag, there's going to be a response of joy, and their joy is your joy, and you share in that joy, right? And God says, in his wisdom, you will know something of a joy in your relationship with me, when we exchange this concept of giving, when I give to you and you give to me, and we talked on this verse, which never fails to baffle my mind. It's in the New Testament. We've touched on this. You guys remember this, I hope. That there was an opportunity for the churches in Paul's day to give to the church of Jerusalem that was suffering. And when it came to the Macedonian church, remember their response? Remember the Macedonians in comparison to the Corinthians? Look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 3. Look at this. This is amazing. He's speaking to the Corinthians and he's, he's teaching on giving. Paul's teaching and trying to stir their hearts to contribute to the needs of the Jerusalem church. And then he says this, let me point you to the Macedonian church. And he goes, for they gave according to their means. And Paul says, I can testify and beyond their means of their own free will. Look what he says in verse 4. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. I said this statement last Sunday, and I'll say it again tonight. Usually when it comes to giving, 
people have to beg others to do so. But with the Macedonians, they were begging to give from their end. They were saying, hold up. The saints in Jerusalem need some help. There needs to be some relief because they're suffering. Can we give? Can we, can we give? We, we don't know how to participate to the extent maybe we can't go there physically, but Paul, please let us give. Let us contribute to their relief. If, if, if our contribution is going to benefit in their relationship with God and their mission for God, we want to do so. Think about it. Read it. Begging us earnestly. So it wasn't just a, a spontaneous one-moment thing. It says earnestly, like continuously. You know when the Bible says pray earnestly? With passion, with devotion, with consideration. Please, Paul, we want to we just be a part of this ministry somehow. Take our money. Take our possessions. Do you think that they were operating under joy or under compulsion? He just said in the verse earlier that they were doing it out of their own free will. This was something that they desired to do. And they said, whatever it takes for us to be a part of it, we want to be a part of it. And I think if there's going to be any joy in any type of giving, it is when we understand that we're giving to someone. And that's God. That's God. God's mission. God's purpose. God's message. Expressed in the local church. Expressed in missionary organizations. You're telling me I can... I can play some part in sustaining. Count me in. Hey, I'll be honest. That's probably not a thing that many people today excel in. But it's possible to get there. And my prayer is, Lord, holistically, make me like that. God, I want you to, seriously, Lord, please let me see my possessions in such a way in which I'm not so tied down to them that... I, I'm so ready to, and in, in fact, when I get that check, I want there to be more joy knowing how I can give it than when I get it. This is supernatural. I understand. It's hard for us to understand, but it's possible to get there. He says, when you come, you're going to rejoice, you and your household, when you're in this process of giving. Lastly, in verse 29, when it comes to this third year tithe, he says at the end, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. So there is a relationship between where my work takes me and what I get from it and me giving it trusting that God is going to bless me in it however he sees fit and I think one simple principle is this that if we take care of God's house he'll take care of ours seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you when we think about God and his kingdom and his righteousness, when we prioritize that, even with our finances, not just with our time and prayer and our time of the word, that's all wonderful, but even in that, there's a blessing that's waiting on God's end to give to us. With one finger pointed at you, never forget that there are three pointing back at me. It's not an easy thing. But Moses just gave us instructions about the Israelites and how we viewed in the New Testament. Number one, how we treat our bodies how we treat our understanding of even the physical things in life, marriage and food. Three, how we understand our possessions and how we relate to God with them. But I want to end on this note. Because if you walked in here for the first time and the first message that you're going to hear is about giving, 
let's be real, maybe that's going to put more of a sour taste in your mouth than anything else because all the rumors that you heard about churches were true. They're, they're just after your money, right? You just happen to step in in a specific Bible study and a specific theme. But I want to tell you something else about giving. It's not about what you can give. It's about what God gave. See, we can know something about giving because we are inspired by our God who gave the most prized possession, who took the most valuable thing, not on the earth, but in heaven, and spent it on us. Hear me very carefully. The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave. God didn't give 10% of his resources. God didn't even give the most splendid, majestic, holy angel that can sing notes that we cannot even imagine and play instruments all at the same time and be its own worship band. God gave his son. What does that mean, God gave his son? It means this. There's a payment. There's a payment that needed to be paid and it's this, all of us have sinned against God. Have you ever lied before? Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? Have you ever taken God's name in vain? Guess what? Because you broke God's law, you are indebted to him. And what God will ask of you and me because we've broken God's law is not your money, is not your house, it's not your car, it's not your clothes, it's not even jail time. It is an eternal separation from the presence of God. That's the payment. Because God is holy and he's just. But God gave something. Rather, God gave someone. Hear this very carefully. And in that person of Jesus Christ, Jesus paid the very fine that you and I were indebted to. Jesus Christ, with his life when he came into this world, with his blood, not your blood, with his blood. See that cross right there? That's not just decoration. See that cross right there? That's not just something you wear around your neck or you put on a wall for good luck charm. That cross is an emblem of God's love. That cross is an empty check. And Jesus got on that cross and signed his name with his blood on it. And the payment was much more than a billion dollars. Because you can go to hell with your billion dollars. On that cross, he made a payment for your soul. Because Jesus says, what does a profit a man if he gains the whole world, but loses his soul? Your soul is the most valuable thing in this life and the next. Not the clothes on your back, not the vacations you go on, not your nothing. Your soul is the most valuable thing and there's no price to it. And Jesus paid a price for your soul that if you were to accept that check from his nail-pierced hand to you, that you would have your soul redeemed and you would have eternal life in the presence of God, knowing his love and his fellowship and his goodness in a way in which, as we just learned, your natural body can't even contain unless you disintegrate from the glory of God.
Why did he do this? Well, the Bible tells us, for God so loved. He loves you that he paid a price for you. Not when you were good, not when you were obeying any laws, even if you were obeying laws in a way you were torturing yourself. None of that means anything. The only thing that would satisfy God was his son being crucified on your behalf and mine. And the reason why you heard a teaching on giving and why we can swallow a teaching like that is because God already gave for us. And whatever he demands from us, whether it's our money or my body, my time or my energy, he is infinitely worthy to receive every ounce of it because he purchased the most valuable thing. That's my eternal destination. It's yours. I, I, I make this statement, which is called the good news of Jesus Christ, for you to hear it and to know this. God doesn't want your money. God doesn't want your money. God doesn't want you to stand on your head and starve yourself. God doesn't want you to cut yourself. God doesn't want you to try to do some kind of thing to imp impress him. God just wants one thing. Ready for it? Your heart. Your heart. For you to just say, I believe that you did this for me and I receive your forgiveness. I turn from my sin and I embrace your love. God, if this whole thing is about me receiving salvation free as a gift, then I say yes to it. Have you said yes to it? Have you said yes to it? And here's the unfortunate thing. Ready for this? I thought I said yes to it. Man, you would be amazed to know how many people understand the gospel. But I've not responded to it. Like, you'd be amazed of how many people you talk to on the street. You go, have you broken God's law? No. And then you convince them that they broke God's law. And they go, but do you know what God did for you as a, as a sinner? And they go, yeah, Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. Like, they know it. Like, they know what two plus two is. But they didn't really respond to it. See, the first verse of this Bible study was, you are the sons of the Lord your God. So this is the question I'm going to ask now. Even if you've heard this truth 10 billion times, you grew up in church, let me ask you this. Do you know that you're a son of the living God? Do you know that you're a daughter of, the, of God? Do you really know? Like, do you know? You go, how do I know? The Bible tells us a wonderful thing, that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I know, I know, like I am the son of George Batarse. I know. At the same time, I know that I'm a part of his family, God's family. I know it. Every person in this room can stand up and point the finger and say, you are not saved. And I would still know I'm saved. Because the Spirit of God bears with us. That's what I'm asking you tonight. Do you know? If you don't know, you came to this Bible study to know, for Jesus Christ to make sure that you leave here with that confidence and that assurance. Can we pray? Lord, it never fails to amaze us how you can speak through every chapter of the Bible, how you can speak from one verse of the Bible and take us down a journey through your wisdom and your love and your goodness and your holiness. We're never going to cease to be amazed. You are awesome, God. You are wonderful. Your word is profound. Lord, in this moment right now, we simply want to worship you. We simply want to give you thanks. We want to give you praise. We want to give you glory. Lord, if there's anybody in this place who cannot confidently say, I am truly a son of the Lord, God, night be the night where they know as they respond to the cross 
Thank you, God, that you gave everything, that you first love us, and that's how we can love, because you initiated it. Lord, we pray that we would be a people who would know how to treat these bodies, known as the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we would know our freedom in Christ, that we can take good things, whether it's a hamburger or whether it's marriage, and turn it into a way of worshiping you. And Lord, that we can know that we can give to you and it can be a joyful experience. That we can know something of the fear of God. That we can know something of blessing from you as we trust that you are worthy of any type of investment for the sake of your ministry. God, if there's anybody in here, again, that doesn't know, let them know what you're all about in Jesus Christ. Receive our worship tonight. Again, Lord, in your presence, we tell you that we are glad to be here. Bless our hearts. Change us more and more. For your glory we pray. Amen.